But I'm excited to get to preach to you this morning. We're in our last week of our Ephesians series, Letters to the Church, and we're looking at the very last chapter, Ephesians chapter 6, if you want to start turning your, your Bibles that direction. Now, as you are turning there, I want to make a statement. In my opinion, one of the most overrated songs of all time is Life is a Highway by Rascal Flatts. Does anybody agree with me? Like, that song just wears you out when it comes on the radio. Okay, I'm the only one. How many of you love Rascal Flatts? Okay, how many of you have no opinion whatsoever about Rascal Flatts? You have no idea who I'm talking about. Okay, that's the majority of you in this room. Well, the reason why I know this song is because it was played in the movie Cars. And if you're a parent and you have had a boy, they have watched the movie Cars at least 500,000 times. And you can quote that movie, and they play that song over and over and over again. And so it's, it just wears me out. There's 273 million listens on Spotify alone to that song. I'm sure Knox has at least 100 million listens of them because I've heard that song so many times. Now, I think the appeal to that song, Life is a Highway, is that it makes life sound like an adventure, like it's a good time, and that people enjoy every aspect of life. And and I, I think there's some truth to that statement. God in his grace and his mercy has provided some amazing experiences for us in life to enjoy. One of the greatest thinkers of the 20th century... 20th century was Forrest Gump, and he said, life is like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get. And a lot of those chocolates that you, that you pick up are going to be sweet experiences in life that you're going to enjoy, that, that's going to bring good memories that you're going to recount for years in the future. However, just as there are good things in life, there are also things that are stressful. There are things that are going to bring weight to your life. There are going to be trials. There are going to be attacks. And as we're in this book of Ephesians and we're wrapping it up, Paul is getting to be very serious at the end of it. And I don't think it's because he's a pessimistic person. Rather, I think Paul enjoyed life, but he was also a realist. He knew that as believers, we had to be prepared. Paul would not say life is a highway. Rather, I think Paul would tell us that life is a war zone. Life is a war zone. If you have your Bibles, we're in Ephesians chapter number 6, and we're going to start reading in verse number 10. Here's what it says. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle with flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities and against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you might be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Now, as I said, this is our last week in Ephesians. This is towards the end of Paul's letter. And he writes, he says, finally, after all that I've told you, finally stand strong in the Lord. This is his closing remarks, and this is applying everything that he's been saying, and this is his last encouragement to the believers in Ephesus. Now, for us to understand what he's really saying, we need to understand the context. When, you, when you're reading the scripture, you need to try to put it all together with everything in the entire book and say, what, what is he trying to say in the context of this entire letter? Because it helps us to have some more depth to what he is writing. 
Now, oftentimes, when we read this passage about the armor of God, we take it from an individualistic standpoint, meaning we look at ourselves and we say, as individuals, I need to put on the armor of God. And this is not bad, but it does rob the full meaning of this passage. The command to put on the armor of God and to stand firm is more than just individuals. We have to remember the context. And what's the context? He's writing to a local church. He's writing to a group of believers and they're reading this together. He's writing to a corporate body, and so this command is more than just us as individuals taking up the armor of God. It's about us as a church, as a local body of believers taking up the armor of God together. This church needs the armor of God. JFA needs the armor of God. The picture that Paul is painting here is not one of a lone knight riding on a white horse in shining armor. Rather, the picture that Paul is painting is a platoon of eager infantrymen ready to go into battle together. Make no mistake about it, life is a war zone. Life is filled with wonderful experiences, but life is also filled with things that are going to bring pain, they're going to bring turmoil, there's going to be trials in life. This passage is calling us to be aware that there is an enemy that is on a war path trying to destroy the local church. He's trying to destroy the individual Christians within that local church, and he's trying to disrupt the redemption plan that God has put forth. If you have been alive for more than five minutes, you can testify to the fact that you've seen the enemy try to destroy your life. He's tried to sabotage your life, and he's tried to destroy you. We can look at churches, and we can see how the enemy has worked in churches and destroyed local bodies. Churches that were one time healthy and doing something for the kingdom have now completely dissolved because the enemy, through his schemes, have made and rendered the church ineffective because the people succumb to the schemes of the enemy. So we're to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. We're not to arm ourselves with our own strength. We're not to rely on our own abilities. We're to be standing strong in the Lord. This standing happens through faith in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior and knowing that he is the one who ultimately brings victory. And that's really the big idea of this entire message. It is this. Christ will supply the strength, the armor, and the victory that we need to withstand any battle that comes our way, both as a church and as an individual. If you're in a place this morning where you feel like you are facing a battle in life, then what you need to understand is that Jesus has provided you the strength to withstand that battle. He's provided you the armor, the tools to withstand that battle, and he's already secured the victory that you're facing in that battle. What you and I are called to do and what we are called to do as a church is to stand strong in what Christ has already done. Now, in the meantime, what we need to understand is not a question of if the church is victorious. Paul's not telling us there's a battle that's raging and the outcome of that battle is uncertain. Nor is Paul telling us that if we don't, we don't fight the right way, that we're going to lose. Rather, what we see in this passage is the command over and over again to stand. A good picture of this would be the Battle of Thermopylae. You guys have probably seen the movie 300. If you read history at all, the Battle of Thermopylae was, uh, is what that movie was roughly based upon. And, and at the Battle of Thermopylae, there was 300 Spartans that fought the Persian army for days. They were completely outnumbered, yet they knew how to fight together. They knew how to interlock their shields. They knew how to use their weapons in unison with one another 
And so as it was being funneled down, they were able to hold off this big, large army for days after days after days after days. And that's the picture that Paul's calling us to do. We're not to wage battle on our own. Rather, we're to stand united with our brothers and sisters in this fight. What Paul is trying to do is get us to have a proper understanding of spiritual warfare. That's a, that's a term you'll hear in church, spiritual warfare. What, what does that even mean? What does that even look like? Well, if you read this entire book, what you'll understand is that we are already seated with Christ in victory. Therefore, when we're armoring up, we're securing ourselves into what he has already done. So with that, let's begin to break down this passage just a little bit. Let's read it again, starting in verse number 11. Put on the whole armor of God that you might be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against the rulers and against the authorities and against the cosmic powers over this present darkness and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you might be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Notice that we are to stand against the devil who is scheming against the church. Now, you need to understand this morning that the devil is real And the devil has a plan and he has a purpose for your life and it's not a good one. We must start with the question, who is the devil? I mean, is he a guy with with a pitchfork, with a pointy tail? Who are we talking about? Well, the devil is the evil one. The scripture calls him the slanderer, the dragon in Revelations chapter 12 who rebelled against God. He was the the serpent in Genesis 3 who tempted Adam and Eve to sin against God. And his primary mission, according to Jesus and John, is to steal, kill, and destroy humanity. Now, we make jokes about the devil, and sometimes we dress up like him at Halloween, but make no mistake about it, the devil is pure evil. Every act of murder, every sexual assault, every act of genocide, every sex trafficking, all of that has originated from Satan. And as Christians, as members of a church, as sons and daughters to the king, we must understand that we are targets of Satan. We cannot afford to allow our guards to go down because we're in a position of victory. However, if we're not careful and we're not guarded, the enemy can get a foothold into our life and wreak havoc in our life. Notice how the devil attacks through schemes, through schemes. The devil's primary work is not in overt ways. It's in subverse ways that lead to overt ways. The enemy's not going to wreck your life by just coming in and causing you all of a sudden to fall completely off the wagon and rejecting God. It was a scheme after scheme that got a foothold into your life that ultimately puts a wedge between you and the Lord. The enemy doesn't just come in and cause all of us to get angry at each other next Sunday. It's schemes after schemes that slowly start to divide us. The schemes against a local church are rampant. All Satan has to do to make the local church ineffective is to cause disunity. All Satan has to do to get a local church to become ineffective is to abandon sound doctrine. All that Satan has to do to get the local church is to lose hope in Christ and the hope that Jesus is the answer. All Satan has to do to make a a local church ineffective is to completely focus on themselves and not the lost. And we can see these schemes evident in many of our churches today. Let this local body be on guard and armored against the schemes of the enemy. 
Not only does he have schemes against the church, but he also has schemes against you. Make no mistake about it, the enemy's coming for your faith. Make no mistake about it, the enemy's coming for your kids. No, make, mis- make no mistake about it, the enemy's coming for your marriage. All he has to do is get you to get your eyes off the truth and start believing the lies, and it's all over. All he has to do is get you to lose faith in Jesus and abandon righteousness, and it's all over. All he has to do is get you to think that you are all alone on an island, and the enemy can start picking you off from the rest of us. And unfortunately, if you spent any amount of time in church at all, you have seen people who were believers, who were completely bought in, and yet succumbed to the schemes of the enemy and completely abandoned the faith. They left. Now, notice this verbiage is to wrestle. We wrestle against the devil. We have a state championship wrestler. Come here, Lily. All right, me and Lily are going to wrestle, okay? I'm just kidding, okay? Now, look. Here's the thing about Lily, okay? Knox man started getting wrestling. I know nothing about, nothing about wrestling at all. But I went and watched the practices. I started watching. You think that it's completely about superimposing your will upon somebody else, but it's not. Wrestling's technical. There's a lot of, there's a lot. How many moves do you know, Lily? A lot. Like, throw a number on it. You can say a lot if you want. They're not going to know anything. I don't know. Probably 20. 20 or more moves. Now, if, like, if... Re- <laughs> Sounds weird, but if Lily and I were going to wrestle, she's going to whoop me, okay? Because I've seen her wrestle. She's picking people up, slamming them down. Like, I don't want to get embarrassed, so I'm not going to do that. But if there was an attack, if I was going to attack Lily, right, what she's going to do is she's going to institute one of the tools that she knows through her wrestling. She's not going to just start doing things just haphazardly. She's going to get technical, and she's going to approach that a certain way so that she can overcome the attack. She's going to be, she's going to think about it. And notice the scripture says that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against an enemy. And a lot of us, what we're doing is we're fighting the wrong enemy in our own life. If Lily's out there on the mat, she has to focus on the person in front of her. She can't be looking to the crowd. She can't be looking at her coach. She has to be looking at her opponent because if at any time she gets distracted, she's going to lose. You can sit down. Thanks, Lily. Give Lily a hand. And a lot of us, we're getting attacked by the enemy, and we're letting our guard down because we're focusing on the wrong enemy. We have a problem, we think our spouse is the enemy. That's not the enemy. We have a problem, we think it's a coworker. They're not the enemy. We have a problem, we think it's the person at church. They're not the enemy. We spend a lot of time facing the wrong enemy. Why am I talking so much about framing the enemy and his schemes? Because Paul wants us to properly identify our enemy. Let me read verse 12 to you again. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities and against the cosmic powers of the present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. I think we as a church... We as believers mistake the enemy as the culture. We mistake the enemy as the Democrats or the Republicans or the porn industry or insert anything here. That's not the enemy. Sin and evil is the enemy. Paul makes it very clear that our battle is not against flesh and blood. We're not going to be able to legislate morality. You can't put enough laws into effect to cure the human heart. The problem is evil, and evil has infected every single heart. And we see that manifesting in the natural. Now, our enemy 
is demonic forces ruling over darkness, according to Paul. What does that mean? Now, does not mean that there's World War III in heaven and the outcome is uncertain. Doesn't mean that God's up there like wringing his hands like, boy, I hope my angels do a good job whooping the devil because we have not, we're going to lose. God doesn't look like I do during an OU football game, right? <laughs> He's not throwing his hat and bellows and stuff and yelling at the TV. Like, that's not what's happening here. Notice the demonic forces of darkness is what we're talking about, spiritual darkness. We as believers are no longer in darkness. So it's not God up there like, oh boy, I hope that, I hope that Archangel Michael beats this devil for Lecky, because otherwise Lecky's in trouble. That's not it. We're not in darkness. John 1, 1 says, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. He's with God in the beginning. All things were made through Him, without Him not... Anything made that was made in him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So, when we give our life to Christ, we remove ourselves from the darkness and we come to light, and darkness cannot overcome you. So, we're talking about spiritual warfare. I want you to see so clearly who the enemy is, it's the devil, but I also want you to see just as clearly that you cannot lose when you are in Christ. This is not a question of if the enemy can come and overtake you. It's only the question of if you're going to allow him to do it or not. The enemy cannot destroy your faith. He cannot destroy this church. He cannot destroy your marriage. He cannot destroy your purpose unless you let him. Why? Because we're not in the darkness anymore. The darkness cannot overcome it. Now, the struggle is real. Doesn't mean it's not hard. It doesn't mean that it doesn't take work. But the battle is won. The victory is already secured. This is how we know we overcome. This is how we have faith that the enemy won't destroy us. Life will have its problems. And maybe you're here this morning and you are in a spiritual battle and you have one on your hands. And it is difficult. I'm not asking you to downplay the battle. But Romans 8 tells us this in verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or the sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all day long, regarded as sheep to slaughter. No, in all things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor power, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. When you put all this together, you see that in Christ we are victorious. And we can have hope. The question is, if the enemy is done lost, then why is he fighting you so hard? It's interesting to me, if you're a student of history, you'll look that most of the time when enemies know that they're defeated is when they fight the hardest. In the great wars of World War I and World War II, it was very evident very early on that the Germans were going to lose in both of those cases. But as soon as they figured out that it was over, they just fought even harder. Particularly in World War I, the Germans fought for, I think it was close to another year after it was pretty evident that they were going to lose. It was some of the bloodiest battles of the war. Why? Because they didn't want to just lay down and take it. And that's exactly what the enemy does in our own life. He doesn't just lay down. He knows that he is lost, and yet he's going to come at you harder and harder and harder. 
So we have to, be, we have to stand strong according to this passage. Now, Paul tells us to stand strong. Most of the time when we talk about spiritual warfare, we spend a lot of time talking about the armor of God. I want to spend just a little bit of time this morning talking about the armor of God because it is important. He says in verse 13, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, having done all to stand. This is a big issue for us. We need to identify the armor. We need to take up the armor. This is a big issue for us because, as I said a moment ago, a lot of us misidentify the enemy, but a lot of times we go into war with the wrong weapons. So we are fighting the wrong enemy with the wrong weapons, and we're really in trouble. A lot of the weapons that people try to use to overcome spiritual issues are self-medication, self-help, self-indulgement, and poor theology, and all of which are going to seriously hurt you in the process. So we're to be standing strong in the armor of God that he has provided for us. And then Paul begins to list this armor. He's kind of loosely following a Roman centurion. We don't need to, or excuse me, a Roman legionnaire. We don't need to really dive into all those type of details because it doesn't really matter. What matters is the specifics that Paul is trying to give us. And he says, look, he says, first, the Lord has provided you with the armor of truth. He says, therefore, stay, therefore having fastened the belt of truth. So if you're going to use the right weapons to overcome the enemy in your life, then the first weapon that you need to pull up is you need to pull up the truth. You need to have the truth bounding your life together. Jesus called Satan the father of lies. One of my least favorite movies is The Elf. Does anybody like The Elf, watching The Elf at Christmas? That dude is so annoying. I can't, I can't really stand and watch that movie. But there is one thing that's super funny about The Elf where he goes in there and there's the fake Santa, you know, and he sits there and he's like, you sit on a throne of lies, you know? That's funny to me. And the enemy, Satan, sits on a throne of lies. Think about all the lies that the enemy whispers into your ears. You don't need God, he's hindering you. Think about the lies the enemy whispers. God has abandoned you or he won't forgive you or your life is over or you have no value. All of those things are lies that we tend to allow to begin to flow through our mind and begin to disrupt what God's trying to do in our own life. Truth combats the lies. Truth comes from God's word. And what truth tells you is that you do have values, that Jesus does love you enough that he went to a cross for you and that he does have a plan and a purpose and that darkness doesn't overcome you. Truth helps you to combat the lies. So if you're going to overcome in a spiritual battle, the first thing you need to figure out is what does the Word of God say and stand on that truth and allow that truth to rule in your heart. Truth helps you to combat temptation. Truth helps you combat false doctrine. If you intend to stand against the scheme of the enemy, then you must be ready to stand firm in the truth. Truth isn't our opinion. Truth is what we find here. Second, the Lord has provided you with righteousness. He goes on to say, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, God has given you his spirit and he creates you into a new creation. He's taken your heart of stone and he gives you a heart of flesh. And in that process, he wraps us and he clothes us in the righteousness of Christ. The righteous desire of the Christian is to combat sin in their life where God takes us and, and we realize our value because we are in Christ. 
We don't want to gratify the old lifestyle. We don't want to allow division in the church. Why? Because that's not righteous. That's not who Christ is. We want to mimic and we want to look like Christ. We want to reflect the key. The temptation in the scheme of the, the devil is always to try to look like the culture. But Jesus calls us to look like him. The church has to look right. Non-believers, when they look at the church, have to see something that's, that's different, that there's some righteousness to it. When the rest of the world is warring at one another, the world needs to be able to look at the church and see a contrast. We have to stand for truth. We have to stand for justice. We can't allow ourselves to be distracted by the ebbs and the flows of the culture. We have to be men and women of righteousness. The third weapon that we see that the Lord has provided for us is he provides us with the gospel of peace. Verse 15 says, And as shoes for your feet, having put on readiness given by the gospel of peace. Paul's echoing another scripture in Romans 10, 15. It says, And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. The church and its members must be fitted. It must be ready. It must be active to advance the gospel. If we're going to fight the spiritual war against the enemy, then we do that by telling people who Jesus Christ is. The gospel brings peace to the heart of ourselves and to other people. If you're ever talking to a non-believer, the one thing that the world cannot give you is peace. We talk about Jesus being our security. There are billionaires who don't know Jesus. Talk about being on an adventure with Christ, there are, there are people who have lived adventurous lives far from Christ. But you can't find peace anywhere other than the good news of Jesus Christ. There's always going to be something gnawing at you on the inside. Something is missing. At any moment, I can lose all this stuff, and I lose my peace. At any moment, someone I love could pass away, and I lose my peace. But when you're a Christian... You understand your sustaining hope comes from Jesus? My stuff no longer is my security. When I know that my, my eternal home is in heaven, while it's hard here on earth, even when we lose loved ones where our own life is taken from us, we still know where we're going. That's peace. That's peace. We must be fitted with the gospel of peace. How does the gospel bring peace? Because now we're right between us and God. And we must be willing to tell others about Fourth, the Lord has provided us with faith to fight this spiritual battle. Verse 16, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. One thing that we need to know about the game of life is that it's chaotic, but we must remain stoic. Paul said we can take up the shield of faith to extinguish the fiery darts of the evil one. Now, we're not talking about saving faith. These are brothers and sisters that he's writing to. They're saved. This is speaking about faith in the midst of chaos. The church needs to have poise and composure when the rest of the world is falling apart. Why? Because we know the one who holds our future. When I was in college, I lived in this garage apartment with this family, and it was a whole separate building. And this guy and his wife, they had three, three daughters, and one day, the mom and the three girls were out shopping. It was football season. I was down there with Stephen watching football. And we're halfway through this game, and his wife and three girls come into the house. Now, I have one boy and one wife, so 
that sounded weird how I said that. <laughs> Our family consists of me and Charity and Knox. So anyways, I, I don't have three ladies running around through the house. Anyway, so we're sitting there watching football. And next thing you know, the mom with the three girls come home. It's just chaos. I mean, there's noise and stuff flying everywhere. I mean, I can't even think straight. And they're in like a whirlwind like the Tasmanian devil. like, And then they all go back out the door. And I looked at Stephen. I said, what in the world was that? And he said, what was what? I said, all this noise. And he said, oh, you get used to it. That's the perfect example of the church. There's a lot of noise and a lot of chaos around us. But we need to get used to the noise and the chaos. We need to keep our eye focused on what we're supposed to be looking at which is Christ. And that faith is a defense mechanism. Because see, if we look at the chaos, fear is going to start ripping into our hearts. Every fiery dart is going to go straight to our heart. Why? Because we're looking at the wrong thing. We need to use faith as a shield, and we need to look ahead. You know what's interesting about shield is if I'm hiding behind the shield, I can't see what's coming at me. I'm hiding behind it. Because if I'm looking, I'm going to get shot in the face. You know what I'm saying? But I'm hiding behind it. So many of us, we're looking at our problems, and we just need to put faith as a barrier between us and our problems. doesn't mean we ignore the problems. If they're within our responsibility to fix, then we fix them. But there are a lot of things that we're not going to be able to fix in life, and we need to be focused ahead. Fifth, the Lord has provided us salvation. Verse 17, it says, and take up the helmet of salvation. We won't dwell here long, but we need to know not just in our heart, but also in our mind that Christ has saved us. There's an intellectual understanding of this that can help then filter down into our heart. There's a lot of information being pumped in our way. And one of the ways we combat it by is wrapping our mind around the fact that we know that Jesus has saved us. And sixth and finally, I want to close with this so the worship team will come back. The Word of God is the only effective weapon that we have. Towards the end of verse 17, it says this, And the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me, that the words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I might declare it boldly as I ought to speak. God in his wisdom has given us two weapons. Everything's armor. Two of them are weapons. The word of God and prayer. That's all you need. The word of God and prayer. How is the scripture and prayer effective weapons against the enemy? Well, Jesus shows us in his own life. When Jesus was being tempted, he quoted the scripture. When Jesus was about to go to the cross in the garden of Gethsemane, he went to the Father in prayer. Prayer and the word are the gifts that God has given to you to help combat the enemy. The scriptures are a sword that you use to fight and the battle. And prayer is the walkie-talkie that you use to communicate to the Father. By reading the scriptures, by quoting the scriptures, you're learning who God is. You're reading and rehearsing the truth. You're reading the final outcome. You're learning about love and mercy of God. In short, you're renewing your mind to withstand the attacks when you read the scripture. Prayer is a gift of communicating to your, to your father. Prayer gets more attention in this than the word and than any other weapon in the list. We're to pray in the spirit. 
which means we're to pray in accordance with the Spirit. This is why the gift of praying in tongues is so powerful for the life of the believer because it allows you to pray the perfect will of God even when you don't know how to pray. Talked about this a couple weeks ago. There are times when you don't know how to pray. That's why Romans 8.26 says, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Look at your life and say, Lord, I don't know how to pray. The Holy Spirit can help you in those moments. Now, I fully recognize as we've been talking about battles this morning, there's probably some in this room that are facing battle in life, spiritual battle. Perhaps you've been in this season for a while, you've, you've misidentified the enemy, or perhaps you're trying to use wrong tools. My prayer is today is that the truth from God's word will illuminate your heart so that you can go into battle against the right enemy with the right weapons. For some of us, that means we need to stand with some truth. We need to stand with some faith. We need to stand with some righteousness. We need to allow the Word of God to penetrate our hearts. Self-help doesn't always help. The latest podcast doesn't always have the right answer. It might, it might roll off the tongue really well. But in the heat of the battle, it doesn't seem to make sense. Real interesting song that we talked about a moment ago close out worship with God is good maybe you're in that battle in this season of life where you're not sure if God is good or not I want to tell you this if you're a Christian then you're already in a place of victory all you have to do is stand for